morning from Matthew chapter 4, so if you would please remain standing in honor of God's perfect eternal word and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 11, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the angel took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You may be seated. This morning, as we continue with our service, we want to remember Misael and Yolanda Morales, who serve in an orphanage in Tecate, Mexico, And uh, our church has supported them for a long time, and we want to continue doing that this morning by bringing them before the Lord in prayer. So pray with me. Lord, we come to you this morning gathered as your people, people who were once dead and alienated from you. God, people who were dead because our love of the darkness compelled us to run from the light. God, we wanted to go our own way. We wanted to be the gods of our own lives, self-centered and self-focused and indulging in the desires of the flesh. God, we were far, far from you, but out of your great love and your great mercy, Jesus came to the cross, and in him he has made us alive again together in Christ. And Lord, we are thankful for the cross. It is for those who, who believe in Jesus and put their trust entirely in him that we can have hope and assurance of eternal life and for that we are grateful and so we come together this morning and we look to the cross and we praise your name we praise Jesus because of what was accomplished there God protect us from being casual with that reality protect us from coming before you and taking the cross for granted, but God, let us be moved in a new way this morning through the preaching of your word as we would see the cross again and see our risen Savior and know what he accomplished for us. 
God, thank you for Misael and Yolanda and their desire to proclaim you and to make you known even in the lives of those who are without family. God, would you strengthen and encourage them? Would you give them peace in the midst of difficult circumstances? Would you um, give them a hope that is based entirely on you? And God, as they are family to those without family, let, let them be an example of the, the greatest family, those who are called sons and daughters of the Most High King. God, may they reflect the love of Jesus to those who are without families and make Jesus known in their hearts and in their lives. So Lord, we commit this service to you. We commit all that would happen here and pray that the praises of our mouths would be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Chapter 2, verses 21 and following says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And the song that we're about to sing has this verse, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So as we sing, let's remember that against any accusation of conscience or the devil stands this great truth. Jesus has died for us. He's died for us, and God who is just is satisfied to look on him and pardon us. Let's sing together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives in peace for me. My name is David on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence Of the guilt within, upward I look at. 
Father, we praise you as uh, the righteous God who looks at the Son and counts us righteous in him. Thank you so much that he has died and risen again. He has borne our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, we worship you and we praise you. We pray that these things would humble our hearts this morning and right now as we uh, prepare to receive your word, that you would open our hearts, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And as you are turning, I want you to ask yourself, what is the one thing that you could do or that you could have that would make everything else in your life easier, better, work better, go better? What, what, is, that, what is that one thing? Something you, you do, something you have, if you could just get it, it would affect everything. I want to argue this morning that the one thing all of us need that would transform all of our lives is a clearer, deeper, more accurate, more complete picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that that is kind of cliche. We say that all the time. Like, you just need to know Jesus better. But, but we know that believers need this because just a few weeks ago in Ephesians, we went through a passage where Paul prays for believers that they would have the eyes of their hearts opened and given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about something more than just this type of knowledge up here. We're talking about a tasting and a seeing and a grasping of the goodness of Christ, of the person of Jesus that transforms every aspect of what you do, what you think, and who you are. And every type of person needs this. If, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you're here because someone dragged you along or you're in junior high and high school and mom and dad say, you know, until you're 18, you're coming with us, but you think this is all a fairy tale or we're just playing at some silly thing, you need to really catch a glimpse of this Savior who will fix everything wrong with the world, who will heal your, your pain, your brokenness, forgive you of your sin, and transform you and make you new. If, you, if you're here today and you're, you're bitter, maybe you've been sinned against over and over again, you need to see this Savior who, even though he is royal and majestic, he is also tender and kind and humble, and he, he walks with those who are weak, and his Gentleness and kindness can melt even the iciest heart. If you're numb spiritually, just going through the motions, this passage in Matthew presents Jesus in a way that's like a splash of water on your face. It wakes up your soul to who he is. If you're joyful and everything's going well this morning, seeing Jesus more clearly will guard you from wandering off in your own strength, from wandering off into pride. If you're caught in sin, seeing a Savior who succeeded on your behalf 
gives you hope and a Savior who empowers you against the sin that so easily entangles us. And if you're ready to give up this morning on your marriage, on your faith, on the Lord, on your job, you need to see a Savior who, who for the love that he had for his people, went into the wilderness, went, went through the pain and the suffering and the shame of death, and who was raised, this one righteous man who was raised to give us a hope and a future and who can rescue us because of the power of his indestructible life. And if you're just some mix of all of that, getting to the end of another week, you also, we also need to catch a glimpse from this familiar passage of who Christ is. Because even though it's cliche to say, to say we need to see Jesus, this passage highlights something that is so dangerous. And it's this. You go to church for a while, you read the Bible once or twice, and, and, then, and then you come to passages and you go, oh yeah, that one. Oh yeah, I know that one. That's the one where Jesus quotes the Bible to Satan and so like I'm supposed to quote the Bible when I'm tempted. I, I know that one. And, and we're like playing with our toe in the water of this ocean of glory and beauty that's in this passage. We, we never want to approach the scripture that way. We always want to know that there is, he is bigger, he is greater, he is deeper, he is wider, he is, he is more than as we know him now. Every time we think we know him, we realize we're just in the foothills of who he really is. And so we want to press on to know him in this passage. And, and what I want you to see specifically, what I think Matthew is drawing out in this, these 11 verses here, is this juxtaposition between the, I don't have a better word than epicness of who Jesus is, of the story that he is fulfilling, of, of his majesty and glory as, as king. And then on the other hand, the way that this king conquers is through humble dependence and trust on the Father. And Jesus is this incredible mix of, of, of both sides in every direction. He's, he's strong and he's courageous and he's bold and he's humble and he's meek and he's gentle. And he, he is, in an infinite measure, the best of everything. And so we want to see him this morning. It's not something that we can force. It's not something that we can... Um, you know, put into the equation and get it right. It's something that God has to do for us. And so my prayer this morning, my prayer this week has been that God would open our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of his son, that we would not just know in our mind, but that we would taste and see his goodness. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the passage together. Uh, there's some context at the beginning and then three tests of Jesus, and then I'll give you some implications at the end. But we are jumping into a story. We're jumping into a story, it's chapter 4 of Matthew, so we've had 1, 2, and 3 before. But then also, we're jumping into a story of, of the entire Bible up to this point. And so we need to, to have some idea of what's going on here, and, and we'll just stick to what Matthew kind of focuses on. And, and what he focuses on is this thread that, that we can see throughout the Bible. So if you've read the Bible before, you know that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? And, and he creates Adam and Eve, and, and he gives them this mission. And the mission can be sort of defined, he, he uses terms of, of royalty, of, of a king or, or a queen, I suppose, because we have Eve as well. And, and he also uses language of priests. And the idea here is that Adam and Eve were to rule over the creation, you remember this language, rule it, subdue it, and bring blessing on it. And then they were supposed to, as priests, show God to the world 
what it means to be made in the image of God. An image is like a, a statue that a king would set up to show he ruled over an area. In the, in the time that the Bible was written, that was kind of the, the point there. And so they are to then spread God's glory across the earth. Remember, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers of God. We just sung about this. Let your, let, let your glory fill the earth. That was the plan from day one, that this blessing would go across the whole earth and fill the world. And so Adam, this one called God's son, is given this job. But if you've read more than Genesis 1 and 2, you know it doesn't go so well. It doesn't go so well at all. And, and so the, the world is, is shattered. Adam fails, but God promises that he will bring someone who can fix this world, who can undo the curse, who can crush Satan. And, and this theme is sort of picked up throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And Eventually, we come to, to God leading his people out of Egypt. And he restates the job that Adam had and gives it to Israel. They're called his firstborn son, just like Adam was called God's son. They're, they're called a kingdom of priests, if you remember. And so this John description that Adam failed at and, and that everyone up to this point had failed at, it's now given to Israel. That, that they would, by obeying the Lord, they would be like this kingdom of priests that would show God to the world. The nations would stream in. God's glory would fill the earth and everything would be wonderful. But again, if you keep reading, you know that doesn't happen. They fail as well. And, and so the, the rest of the story of the Old Testament is this series of failures. Yes, someone's going to come who can, who can do it. And yes, that person is going to come from the family of Israel and from the line of David. But, but man, everyone fails. And so the prophets come and they start saying, okay, basically the message of the prophets is this. No human can do this. So we actually need God to come back to fix it. God has to come back and be king. He's going to have to shepherd his people. That's what a, a word for like what a king does. He's going to shepherd his people and, and lead them. In, in a new rescue that's like the Exodus, but this time he's going to save them from, from sin and from death and, and lead them to eternal life. And then, I mean, it sounds great, right? Like, okay, good. But then we know, after the book of Malachi, we have 400 years of silence. And so you're, you're asking at this point, is God's plan still on track? Is this thing still going to work? Is he really going to fix it all? And then Matthew opens his gospel emphatically saying, yes, the plan is still on track. He's still going to fix this world. And he introduces Jesus in chapter 1 through this genealogy. The son of David, he's the king we've been waiting for, the son of Abraham, the one who can cause blessing to go to the entire world and rescue not only people of Israel, but the entire world and undo the curses of creation. He is here, the time is now, and then in chapter 2, he ends up quoting a, a series of Old Testament passages that, that basically sandwich the entire hope of the prophets down into a few passages. They say, Yahweh is finally here. Do you remember? You'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is here now. He's going to shepherd his people. And he's going to lead them in a rescue operation from sin and death. The plan is here. Yahweh is here, and he's going to war for his people. And then, in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Do you remember this, maybe? And, and what's really kind of going on in this passage 
is that in John chapter or in um, Matthew chapter three, it's like if you know um, the story of King Arthur. Remember when like I don't know it super well, but right he pulls the sword out, and everyone says what? Hail King Arthur! Because the one who can pull the sword out is the one who can be the king. It's similar to this. At Jesus' baptism, he's stepping onto the stage and saying, I am here and I am ready to rescue my people. Here we go. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it's like when Aragorn takes the sword that only the king can, can use, and he finally takes it and he's stepping onto the stage, and here he is. That's what happens in Jesus' baptism. And if you remember, he, God says, from heaven, as the Spirit descends on the Son, as the Spirit descends on the King, He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you remember, Adam was called God's Son. Israel was called God's Son. And now God says, though they failed, here is the one upon whom all the hopes now rest. It's like if you laid a, you know, a giant sheet out on the ground and you took all of God's promises up to this point, piled them up on the sheet, took all of the hopes of humanity, piled them on that we might be saved and cleansed and rescued and that disease would be taken away and that death would be defeated. Just pile all of them on the sheet. Grab all four corners, tie it up into like a knapsack or whatever, you know, and, uh, and take that and place that on the back of Jesus. That's what happens in the moment of his baptism, that he takes this mantle on himself and says, here I am, place all the hopes on me and all of history will now hinge on this man. That's the story that we're now walking into. And now, in Matthew 4, of course, the king is now here and now he's going to battle for his people. This is the last thing that Jesus will do before he begins his public ministry. He's going to crush the devil and then he's going to go and plunder his house. And so, let's look. Chapter 4, we're going to start with the setting in verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, first, he's led by the Spirit, and the fact that Jesus had the Spirit is a big deal in and of itself. Because again, the Old Testament shows that every single human fails. And it basically says this, you need a new heart. You need a heart you need the Spirit to give you a heart that will actually love God because you can't without Him. And so the King who's going to come, the King who can actually fix this world, kind of the core thing He has to do, among many things, but He has to give His people a new heart because that's what they need. And so the King's going to have the Spirit rest upon Him and then He's going to be able to give it out, which is what He does in His resurrection. And so Jesus, as this perfect King, royal and majestic, but He's humble and dependent at the same time. He's led by the Spirit. And God's purpose is really clear here. To be tempted by the devil. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't a trick. Satan didn't catch Jesus off guard. The Lord orchestrated this for Jesus to display his majesty through his humility. Also note, into the wilderness. So around here, when I think wilderness, I think like Sierras with like uh, mountains and rivers and forests. It's closer to the area you drive through to get to the Sierras. The, the part where you're like, okay, we need to make sure we have enough gas so that we can make it, you know? Um, it, it's, it's rocky, it's craggy, it's, it's, it's um, sandy, barren, just terrible. 
that's the area where Jesus is. That's the setting of what's going on here. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Sometimes the way the biblical authors state things, you have to smile a little bit. That is the understatement of the century. 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. But it shows us, and the gospel writers make a, a big deal about this. Yes, he is God, but they bring out so many times he is human. He, he walked through this life. He had pain. He had suffering. He was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. He, he Yes, without sin, but he walked through the pain and the suffering that we have so that he might be a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses. Now, when you see this after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, there are a few threads that are being pulled on here. And, and we also see this because of the quotations that Jesus makes. And I want to bring these out now before we sort of get into it any further. So, the first thing that um, a lot of commentators will, will bring out here when you see God's Son tempted by the devil in the wilderness, you start to have echoes. And you'll see how this fits perfectly with this kind of storyline we already traced out. You start to see echoes of another one of God's sons that was tempted but in a garden, Adam. But it's, it's sort of this like reverse foil because Genesis 2 makes it really, really uh, emphatic that Adam and Eve are provided for really well. Everything they need is there for them in the garden, almost to make the point that when they fall, when they rebel, like they had everything but they rebelled against the Lord. And now you have this flip. That though they failed, and though Israel failed, now one is here, and he's going to be placed under temptation, but the exact reverse. He, he's in the most uncomfortable, not... Uh, just imagine, I mean, you've been fasting 40 days. We miss lunch, and it's not good news. It's 40 days, and he's in the desert. It's a, it's a foil, you might say. It's the exact opposite of Adam and Eve here, but where they failed, well, will he? And then the other thread that comes out, when you see fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, well, someone else did that. Moses did that on Sinai when he received the law. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And then also, each quotation that Jesus quotes from the Bible comes from this small section in Deuteronomy where Moses is telling the people how they should have responded in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, you know that they were there for 40 years. So you have all these threads kind of hanging here together, and, and you can start to see, oh, so Adam had a job, but he fell short of the glory of God. That job description then transfers over to Israel. They certainly fell short. Now, this one, we sing that song, this true and better Adam is here. Will he fail? Will he fail? fail. What kind of king is this one going to be? So, that's the setting. That's what we're walking into. And now we're going to look at these three tests of Jesus. Test number one. Test number one. And, and each of these tests is going to have a couple factors that are similar. I want to mention these now before we get into them. Each test is going to have Satan essentially taking, um, taking a trying to take a tactical advantage over who Jesus was. He basically says, since you are God's son, or if you are God's son, go ahead and prove it. 
Prove it. God has claimed you as his son. Prove it. Let's see it. And he's going to try to, to, to twist that, to, to cause Jesus to use his authority in an unlawful way. And then the second thing he's going to do is each temptation in some way is going to try to get Jesus to, to do or claim something that was, was his by avoiding pain and suffering, by avoiding the cross eventually. That's Satan's tactic. Avoid the cross. But Jesus, though he is high and holy and lifted up and majestic and royal, humbles himself and dependently trusts on the Lord. Let's see it. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I think the tone of the devil here is similar to what we've seen him in other places, like in Job, this cutting sarcasm. Since you're the Son of God, or if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Again, we miss lunch, and it's hard. 40 days and 40 nights. This zeroes in on just the physical aspect of this temptation that, that I could only think about bread at this point. But our king's response, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so there are layers of beauty in this response. Layer number one, just, just the glory and the majesty of, of finally, finally we found someone who depends on the Lord to this type of degree. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and yet when the devil comes to him, no, I will not provide for myself. He could have turned, the, easily, easily he could have turned these stones into bread. No, I will rely on my father. He will provide for me. That's the type of king this is. Humble, dependent. Second layer of, of beauty that's going on here. We already brought this out, but just to note it again. He doesn't overcome the devil, in this lushly well-provided garden. He does it in the wilderness, in the barren, lonely, hungry place. Then there's the layer that's referenced by the quotation. This quotation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and if you remember, it comes when the people come out of Egypt, right after they come out. God has done all these miracles on their behalf, and right after, they're like, Oh, can we just go back to Egypt? It was so much better there, please. You're going to kill us out in the desert. What? But Jesus quotes this, and the, the idea here is that where the people failed to trust, the Savior, the King, doesn't fail. Where the people whined and complained, he continues trusting. He is the faithful one. The last layer I want to bring out here is, is sort of the, the royal side of this response. So Jesus is he's more than just this, but he is the king of Israel. He's the true king of Israel, the descendant of David, and the king in Israel was supposed to write down a copy of the law and keep it with them so that they could meditate on it day and night. And that is exactly what was on this man's heart and mind. When we would have thinking, been thinking about nothing but food, he is that Psalm 1 man who meditates on his word day and night. It just flows out of him. It's his 
response. And I hope what you're starting to see, this passage is much more, not, it's not less, but it's much more than a, a pattern for you to fight sin in your own life. This is a passage about a Savior who has fought sin on our behalf and won. And yes, he provides a model. Yes, quote scripture when you're tempted. Know your Bible, of course. But I hope you can see we're swimming in much, much deeper waters than just that. He is the king that we have been looking for. So test one, he passes. Number two, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this is super clever and subtle. I would argue here that Satan is actually accurately quoting the Bible. He's misapplying it, he's misusing it, but he's right. He quotes Psalm 91, which is about how the Messiah will be protected. He's right. Does Jesus fall for it? And by the way, the, the, okay, so here's the temptation. Jump off. If you're God's son, prove it. Jump off because he promises he'll protect you. So jump off, he'll protect you, and then it'll be proved to everyone that you're God's son. Prove it. Go. Jesus said to him, verse 7, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He doesn't argue. Yeah, he would save me. He would rescue me. But I don't, I don't need him to prove that. I trust him inherently because of who he is. He trusts. He's humble. He's dependent on his Father. And he knows the Scriptures. You shall not put the Lord your God, to the test. Also a quote from when Israel was in the wilderness and then in Deuteronomy, Moses instructs them how they should have responded. And again, Jesus is the obedient, the faithful one, where everyone else failed. Again, if Adam is obedient, blessing goes to the whole world. If Israel is obedient, blessing goes to the whole world. That was always the plan, that blessing would go out from Israel to the whole world and that the, the whole world would see God's glory and, and it would fill the earth, and they failed, and so blessing did not come to them or to the world. And now Jesus, finally the obedient one, is going to be able to receive and then share the blessing of God with the entire world, fixing everything. And so we come to this third test. By the way, one quick note before we move on. If we see how subtle the devil is here in twisting God's word, be careful, especially nowadays with the internet. I, I have friends that I bounce things off, like, hey, I, I found this new preacher, and I listened to something. What do you think of this? Don't just float around on your own. Have some discerning people in your life that can help you when you hear new things, can help you test ideas off one another. Hey, is this biblical? Because we know that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, and many times the way he devours us is small, tiny little twistings that you get two years down the road and you go, wow, I didn't think there was anything wrong, but what in the world happened? Or you might not even realize. Have some wise friends in your life that you can bounce things off. Test number three. Starting here in verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I think this test is climactic. It's climactic because it resonates with something in, uh, in Deuteronomy as well that we talked about, or that, that was known in, in relation to the king, and that's this. The king, there was a special law in Deuteronomy about the king, that the king of Israel, as kind of the representative of the people, the one who could, could cause blessing to come to them, he had to avoid three things. Piling up gold, amassing a large army, chariots, or gathering lots of wives. And to put that in our terms today, he needs to avoid the traps of wealth, power, and sexual sin. And that knocks out all of us, doesn't it? And it knocked out every king of Israel. Because every time you hope, hey, maybe something's going well. Oh yeah, David, um, Bathsheba, Uriah, all of it. Nope, not going well. Uh, Solomon, so wise. No, thousand wives. And he amasses chariots and gold. And when, when Satan tempts him in this way, I think that, that this is sort of included in the overtones of the passage, that, that the king of Israel, who, who all of the kings thus far have been shown to fail this test, and the Old Testament authors bring this out very clearly, and then Jesus comes and he's offered the glory of the kingdoms of the world. Power, wealth. Will he also fall? But you have to remember, Jesus, that's what he was going to get was the nations. Psalm 2 tells us this. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. This was going to be his. So what in the world is the temptation? Do you see? Like what? Satan, nice try. It, no. But the temptation is this. Get it without the cross. Get it without the cross. Avoid the suffering. And we know that this is a real temptation for Jesus. He's not some floating ghost that's like, this is easy for me. No, it's a real temptation because in the garden before he dies, he sweats, it says, as if it were drops of blood. The pain of the cross, the pain of our sin and the wrath for it being poured out on him by the Father. That's a real temptation to avoid that. And yet he goes down this path and does not falter. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, quoting a passage from Deuteronomy where the people were following after false gods. You remember the golden calf? And, and they were failing, and he doesn't. In fact, this, Deuteronomy is not the only time this comes up. If you want to turn with me to Joshua 24, um, this is a, a, a kind of famous passage, you know, the one that everyone has in their house. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord, Joshua says. But if you turn to Joshua 24, starting in verse 21, I'll give you one more moment to turn over there. Joshua 24, starting in verse 21. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. 
He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. They're saying, we will follow the Lord. And he goes, okay, great, you have idols still among you. Get rid of them. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, here it is, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Echoing the same passage in Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And a little further down in verse 27, Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And if you turn one page in your Bible, you get to the book of Judges, where everything spirals out of control. And and so to speak, that stone is screaming out in witness against them, that they were not Faithful. They were not faithful. None is righteous. No, not one. Save this one Jesus. Who quotes this same passage. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He is able. Against every temptation that brought down every person so far in human history, he succeeds. He is faithful. He is humble. He is dependent on the Lord. He doesn't conquer by by faith in himself or his own strength, like so many humans have have tried to do, but he relies dependently on his Father over and over again. And then exactly what the devil tempted him with, he will command his angels concerning you. In in verse 11, back in Matthew chapter 4, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want to draw out as we close up here, I think four or so kind of implications of this passage for us to think about. The first thing, you see here how Jesus, the exalted, righteous, holy one, there is no one higher, the name at which all knees will bow. And yet he is the one who dwells, he says, with, with those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. He calls himself, just a little further on in this book, gentle and lowly. He, he Isaiah says, he doesn't crush a, a, a bruised reed or, or quench a smoldering wick. The idea is people that are broken and needy and weak, he doesn't cast them away to the side. You see the juxtaposition that makes him so glorious. He is as great and as high as you can be, and yet he dwells with the humble and the lowly and welcomes them in. When we fail, he loves to rescue us over and over again. And and the, the, the concern here is that we would talk so much about his kingship and his sovereignty and his reign, which is good. I love talking about that. There's not one molecule that he doesn't reign over and, and have control over. And yet if we say that very loudly, and we don't equally hold up that he is also tender and meek, that he, he came to save The weak ones, we have to have both of those. We have to have both of those. Because what can start to happen is that we start to see Jesus in the Gospels like this, like almost like prophetic robot. Like, I have to fulfill this, so I do this. Then I have to fulfill this, so I do this. Then I come over here. Instead of realizing that every action of Jesus, yes, it fulfills prophecy, but it's fueled by his intense commitment and love for his people. His intense love for his people. 
And Paul, Paul even goes a step further and takes this one step further in Ephesians 4. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the question then for us is, however you might think you're growing spiritually, if you aren't growing in tender-heartedness, kindness, you're not growing. When you see Christ in this way, it makes you love Him, it makes you worship Him, and it makes you gentle with others. It makes you kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. If you want to measure your spiritual growth, are you growing in kindness and tender-heartedness? Next thing I think we need to draw out of this, we talked a little bit about we don't want to settle for shallow surface-level interpretations. We don't want to read through the Bible and say, yep, got it, move on. And we're so scared of going beyond. It would be, it would be evil if I came to this passage and started saying things that weren't in it. You know, this passage teaches us that you, know, you need to buy a dog. No, it's not there. right? We don't want to go beyond. We, we, we dare not go beyond. But we can't let the fear of not going beyond what God says let us not see what's all of what's actually there. It's just as bad to, to ignore what's actually there than to go beyond what's there. We want to see if, it's, if the truth of a passage is a circle, we want to fill in the whole circle and get all of it, not just one little dot here and there. Dig, I get it. We don't have time. You can't, every time you come to a passage and you have one little question, you can't sit for an hour and go trace, track it down and figure it out. You've got kids that are crying or school assignments or work. Or you, I get it. But we want to continue pressing on to know there's more of Christ to see. There's more of his glory. There's more of his majesty and beauty to be beheld by our soul. And that will absolutely transform us if we can catch a glimpse of him. And lastly here, I think, I think there's a question worth asking. When, when you see a passage like this and you see, okay, Jesus has defeated Satan. And then we see at the cross he's defeated Satan. And then the world will ask, and I think even we, we can ask, if Jesus is so strong and he has won and he has victory, why doesn't he just come back and make it right? Why do we still live in a world where children get disease and die? have to face that. But the Bible's answer on this is clear. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, reach repentance. And Jesus says in John 10, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And we know that as we keep reading Matthew, we come to the end, we come to the Great Commission. Those who follow this king are sent out to, to, look, he was the obedient one that could finally unleash blessing on the world. And what is the way that he does that through his people as they go out and share the truth with others? I I love, there's a story of a group of of people called Moravian missionaries. And, and this was, I believe, in the 1700s. The, the story goes that these two young men heard about the slave trade that was going on in the Caribbean. And they said, we have to go. 
we have to tell these people about Jesus. They have no witness. They tried to sell themselves as slaves, but no one would buy them. So they took the trades that they had, and they said, okay, we'll get on a boat, and we'll go work there. And as they're leaving, what the, the report of what their words were to their families for the last time that they would see them was, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. When you see the Jesus, the King who is humble, the majesty and the glory of this one, when you see him and that captures your soul, you say things like that. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What's the reward of his suffering? The people that he died for. The sheep that are going to be a part of his fold that aren't there yet. And I don't, I, I don't say this lightly. I, I, as a dad now, I feel the weight of this more. But I look out at some of you junior high, high school, college age. Maybe that's you. Maybe you do something and go somewhere that makes no sense to anyone except those who understand this mentality. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And for most of us who maybe aren't going to go, what if that mentality gripped how we parent? What if that mentality gripped how we act in relation to our neighbors, in, in relation to our jobs, in relation to the world? This is our mission. And so finally, whether you're, you're bitter or joyful or in pain or suffering, or whether you're tired or exhausted, wherever you're at, whether you're, you're spiritually numb, we finally found the one. We finally found a man on whom we can place all those hopes, all those fears, all those promises of God, and he can carry them, and he can do away with them, cast our sin as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the sea and have his perfect righteous life applied to us as we just sung about so that now there's no condemnation. And finally, we found someone who can do all that with not one ounce of grudgingness toward us. He delights to do it for you. He delights to pour out his love on you. so that we can know him forever and enjoy him forever. That is our God. That is our King. That is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son, for sending him to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, so that we might have hope of life with him. Thank you for sending him to pay for our sin and to give us new life. We love you. We pray that you would impress these truths on our heart this morning. Amen. We, we get to now come to the Lord's table, which is for those who have trusted in Christ. If that Jesus in that passage, if he is your king, if he is your Lord, if you have bowed your knee to him, this is the, the family of God's way to say he's our Lord. We remember back to his death and we look forward to that day when he, because he went into the grave and came back as we celebrated last week, because he rose from the dead, 
he will also give life to our mortal bodies. One day we will be resurrected and be on the new earth with him forever. And so as Paul said, what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would make all things new. And until that day, we trust you, we love you, we thank you that you lived and died for us. And we worship you as our King, Lord, and Savior. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to close singing together, Give Me Jesus.
last announcements for you. We have some new members, Seth and Isaac Holbrook, and also Shauna Pachinte. So if you know them, uh, say hi, welcome them. Also, uh, VBS is coming up. It's going to be June 19th through 23rd. That's uh, Vacation Bible School. And in two weeks, you can sign up for that. And then just a few other uh, things. The family game night date has gone back one week to May 6th. There's a women's spring tea on April 29th. And there's a men's quarterly event on June 17th. So get those on your calendars. And let's close with uh, a passage from Ephesians chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me 